1: Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. I have to say that was the longest I've let the uh, intro play before, so there ends up uh, being some pretty interesting sitar riffs there uh, after about 30 seconds. I didn't even realize that was in there. So what's up, guys? Um just me today no Kyle this is the solo day i'm getting into alfred north whitehead uh, that was what i planned to do last week and uh, wasn't able to bring to you last week we did um we did that interesting kind of kind of like dream analysis on that salvador dali painting his paintings are they're like dreams so it was very easy to do relatively and, and interesting um but i just kind of had to use had to plug that in because uh, i wasn't really ready for Um, Episode 2 of Whitehead Um, This one I'm going to call Whitehead's model And it's really just about His process philosophy And the model that he puts up um, That he presents as a model of the universe So uh, for you guys who can see this Alfred North Whitehead process and reality This is what we're we're reading Um, As a refresher We originally got into this uh, Alfred North Whitehead stuff From a From a um, Doctor out in um, a doctor of philosophy out in the UK uh, who wrote a book called Modes of Sentience. And I read it and had some interactions with the author online, a very nice fella. Um, and he's he's been going back and forth with me uh, questions on Whitehead. So it's kind of nice to have some resources uh, to be able to fall back on because Whitehead is not easy, not easy to understand. Uh, if you remember when I did the Modes of Sentience lectures and we talked about Whitehead, um, we had to do a vocabulary lesson. So we had to spend like you know, a minute together at the beginning to define a bunch of words that you never heard before that Whitehead uses. And I'm not going to do that again with you today, but I do want to mention that my understanding of those words, the definitions of those words, has changed a bit now that I'm getting into process and reality itself. I'm getting into the words of Whitehead and I'm not relying on uh, kind of any anybody else. Um, and I'm trying to do that with this podcast, by the way. I'm trying to not rely on on other um, on other references so when I'm reading something I'm giving you my genuine opinion and the thoughts that come to my mind without thinking about it in advance without regurgitating for you what other people think about it this is literally authentically my first you know uh, sojourn into the book and my my honest opinions about what I think it means so I think that's important. I mean, it's the one way that we're going to get novel thoughts and ideas is that we try not to base our own thoughts and ideas too much on the ones that came before us. And so, you know, part of the solo episodes on this podcast is exactly that. I mean, I'm trying to do exactly that. Um, I do learning. That's stage one. That's, that's the reading. That's the getting into these new concepts and ideas. Um, and it's fun for me. And the second part is teaching. And that's what I'm doing with you guys. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you if you spend time learning, and then you don't stop there, but you turn around and you teach it, you spend some some time teaching, you will understand concepts so much better than when you were just in the learning phase. It has something to do with thinking through things differently when you're teaching versus when you're learning. So we're going to be learning together, but um, I'm going to do the, the teaching bit today. Um... So what do I say about Whitehead before I begin? Uh, Whitehead was the guy who uh, brought this idea of process philosophy, or what he calls philosophy of organism, to the table, and it's like kind of a kind of a big divergence from all the other philosophers that came before him, with the exception of maybe uh, Spinoza and maybe some others, you know, in the same vein. Um, but in any case. Whitehead talks about ontology, he talks about theories, um, about how reality got here, how it arose, what it's made of, what what the relationship is between you and I and this place we find ourselves in that we call being, whatever this is, you know, And, and he focuses heavily on experience. We've talked about this many times from a psychological perspective, but experience really is reality for us, full stop. Our experiences are the only way we know each other. They're the only way we know ourselves. They're the only way we know the world. Um, you know, even when we do scientific ex- experiments, mm-hmm. even those are experiences that we're having. So we really can't divorce ourselves from experience. We can't divorce science from experience. And this is what philosophers of mind and of science um, fight about. And Whitehead offers what might be a solution to this problem. And it's really interesting. And I'm not, obviously, not finished with the book. I don't know if I 100% agree with all of it. I told you guys before I had some reluctance um, to agree with Whitehead in the way that he conceptualizes God because he doesn't see God as the beginning. He sees process as the beginning. And we'll talk about that today. And it's really interesting. But God, for him, as a being you know, conceptualized as a being, the way that religious people do, he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. But he doesn't allow for that to be the primordial thing. He doesn't allow for that to be the source of reality, which I find to be very weird. Um, It's almost like semantics. It's like you're using God, but you don't mean God by that. And I, I... I'm frustrated by that. On top of that, there's all sorts of other words that he uses, like concrescence and prehend and all kinds of things that we're going to run into today that are also difficult. And so, you know, one of the things I say in the intro here is whether the juice is worth the squeeze, uh, and the whitehead fruits have a very thick skin. So we're going to get the juice here, but it's going to take a lot of effort. So let me just jump into this with my intro before we start talking quotes from the book. So let's begin like this. Whitehead's model of reality is one of a double-sided wholeness, a generative union of opposites. Now, you've heard me say that many times before. When I talk about a generative union of opposites, I too, like Whitehead, am talking about ontology. Usually, I'm talking about myths of creation. So we try to understand how things got here and why things are what they are and what they are, all of that. Um, we're talking about ontology, you know, and and when I talk about that from the mythological perspective, I usually talk about the Ouroboros. I stole that from Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson, and I'll, I'll talk about that and just symbolically. That what we see in myths about creation are something like a union of opposites, and so we've talked about that in many many ways. Sometimes we use masculine and feminine as those opposites. Sometimes we use being and non-being, conscious and unconscious. Um, potential and actual. And we're gonna, that's, that's sort of what we're going to see a lot today, is this um, conceptualized as the union of potentiality and actuality. Um, so I won't over-explain that yet. But this is exactly what Whitehead brings to the table, a double-sided wholeness, a generative union of opposites. So on one side, he sees potentiality, on the other, actuality. Both, however, are equally real, and constitute the wholeness of existence. We see this expressed again in his formulation of God, which is simultaneously a primordial amalgam of the potential existing outside of time, whatever that means, uh, which can become actual, right? The potential which can become actual. And... A consequent amalgam of all the potential experiences that have been actualized. So you've got this primordial nature of God, and you've got this consequent nature of God. Um, we can't. We're not going to get the whole picture without understanding both. So God is both this primordial, you know, thing that exists outside of time. That's something like potential. The potential for what? The potential for experience. And then there's the stuff that's actually objects of experience, the creation, the stuff that exists in the world that you can have an experience of. That's called the consequent nature of God. So even that is like this double-sided wholeness, right? So in much the same way as in mystic experience, Whitehead describes a paradoxical unity at the basis of reality. This can be seen religiously, as the unity of creator with creation or better yet a recognition that these related concepts are not merely related in a cause and effect sort of way but they are in fact one thing indivisible and counter-dependent which brings us to the process in process philosophy you see to whitehead all of existence is alive right that's why he calls it organism as such, it acts and moves and transforms, none of which can occur if the basis of existence is static. Like a, a lot of philosophy likes to think about some unchanging thing at the beginning. It's what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. No, that's gone in Whitehead's philosophy. The world is constantly transforming, it's dynamic, so the thing that creates it must also be that way. And the dynamism of the cosmos is therefore seen in the process of experience between both sides of the fundamental oneness. Potentiality acts upon actuality, and actuality back on potentiality in an internal cycle. Potentiality becomes concrescent in Whitehead's terms, and its prehensions change what novel concrescence can occur next. Stated differently, creator acts upon creation. And interestingly to Whitehead, creation acts right back upon the creator. Think about that for a minute. Alright, so we can get into the book here without further ado. It begins like this. The chapter contains a sketch of the primary notions which constitute the philosophy of organism. It embodies notions inevitably presupposed in our experience. All right, so he's just opening it, opening it up here. But what he's saying is he's going to let us know how he's configured his philosophy, how his model of reality looks. And then he wants us to know that that model comes not from you know, his imagination, not from his ass. It comes from the realities of our immediate experience. That's where he's going to start. So people like Descartes, they wanted to find a place to start, like all philosophers do. Descartes said, look, I'm going to doubt everything I can doubt. And when I run into something I can no longer doubt, that's where I'm going to build. That's where I'm going to start. Well, this isn't what Whitehead did. Whitehead said, no, let's take this from an existential perspective or a phenomenological perspective. Let's, let's start with what we know for sure. That's our, that's our immediate experience. That's, that's all we know. That's all that's possible uh, to be known is experience. So that's where we're going to start. Now, that's, that's interesting because science, as a contrast, starts with abstractions. And it couldn't be any further from what Whitehead is doing. Whitehead's starting from experience, okay? Conscious experience. That's all we know. Scientists don't do that. In fact, they write off conscious experience. Many of them say it's an illusion, right? It's emergent. It's, it's nothing. I, I sneer at that, but, you know, I'm not trying to color this debate. I just want to let you know. Science looks at abstractions first. They say, look, we look at all the things in our experience, and we see patterns and things that we can abstract that are common to all. And that usually comes in the form of a substance, like what things are made of, Right? They're made of atoms. They're made of quantum waves, right? Those quantum waves follow laws, and those laws are abstract and they don't change, you know? It's like that's where science starts from. Then they build the world from it. And Whitehead thinks that's a mistake. Many people think that's a mistake. So let's push on. He says In the notions actual entity, prehension, nexus, an endeavor has been made to base philosophical thought upon the most concrete elements in our experience. So these are those words that we're going to hear about, a bunch about today. Actual entity, prehension, and nexus. There are others, but these are, these are some. And he's saying, look, these are the components of your experience. So this is where we're going to begin. We're going to build our philosophy from what our experience is like, what we can know about it, that sort of thing. And he's proposing that there are components of our experience. So let's keep going. He says, actual entities are the real things of which the world is made up. There is no going behind actual entities to find anything more real. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. So he's saying that actual entities, and another word he uses for this, is drops of experience. And I am struggling to understand this concept. This is something I've... I've, I've, I've Been asking questions about, so I'll let you know what I come up with, but for now, I'll do my best. When he says actual entities are the real things of which the world is made up, he means the world of our experience. So it's not the same thing to say that actual entities represent some kind of constituent matter, like atoms. That's not the case. The world isn't made of atoms, to Whitehead. See, the world is experience, it's not exactly a physical thing, right? So what it's made up of is something like components of experience, right? Or the basis of experience, whatever that means. And he says there's no going behind them to find anything more real. You can't say that experience is composed of anything more than actual entities. You know, they're the, the, you know, the indivisible building blocks of experience or the simplest forms of experience, whatever that might mean. And then when he says that actual entities are the real things of which the world is made up, what he means by that is actualized. So the word real, in this case, means physically real. And we're going to talk about the difference between potential, which is something that exists but hasn't been made real. And even that is a difficult way of talking. When I say something exists but isn't real, doesn't that make your head spin a little bit? All right. So Whitehead says that there are things that are real, that are material, that are actualized then there are things that are real that aren't yet manifest, right? They're potential, and they're both real. They're both components of reality. So actual entities are are actualized. They're experience that's actually happening, you know? And we can contrast that by saying that there are experience or the potential for experience that is just that. It's potential. It's not yet realized, not, not yet actualized. You know, those experiences haven't happened yet. Then he goes on and he says something strange, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but he says, God is an actual entity, and so is the most trivial puff of experience and far-off empty space. All are on the same level. Actual entities are drops of experience, complex and interdependent. So we're going to see a lot about this interdependence and because... Because Whitehead believes, uh, one of the things that that Spinoza believed very deeply, that everything is one, you know, that the philosophy of organism is the philosophy of the only thing that exists, you know. There is only one thing. Everything is in unity. So you will see this idea come up um, again and again. So that that interdependence, again, we're going to see that a bunch. So what does he mean here when he says God is an actual entity? Okay, so God is like the potential of some type of experience. Then he says that God is no different in that way than any other puff of experience, even, even some trivial experience, it, you know, in some infinitely far spot in space that doesn't matter to you in any way, that God has an experience and any other experience are exactly the same. Maybe not in their character, but in their essence, they're exactly the same. God is not a higher experience than any other kind of experience to Whitehead. If you start to see why that seems strange, and it seems strange to me, it's partly because Whitehead he has a different name for God. He calls it the creative advance. And by that, he means God. Whatever, what everybody else would agree he means God by. But then he, again, he talks about God in other ways. But let's talk about God as an experience for a second, because that's interesting. What does that even mean, God as an experience? And he's saying that it's an actual entity. So God as an experience is is an actualized reality, right? It's something that can be experienced. Now, I talk about mystical experience all the time, so this is something that doesn't seem all that strange to me. If you have a mystical experience, and this is something people will commonly report, let's say with an intense psychedelic experience, in the right set and setting. now People who have that type of experience, they say that they became one with the universe, that sort of a thing. So not only do you see that um, unity idea come in, which we're going to see a bunch of, um, but you can also understand how people who say they became one with the universe, they have they're talking about an experience they had. And it's an experience of being everything there is, or an experience of being the potential for new creation. I mean, I don't know what to call that other than God. A mystic experience is an experience of being God, or, or participating in God, or at least recognizing that whatever it is you are is something that participates in God and is, is inseparable from it. You know, it is an amazing experience for those people who've had it. It's life-changing. So there are ways of thinking about God as an experience in the way that I just did, talking about a mystic experience. But see, a mystical experience, you might say, is something like an experience of, well, what Whitehead is going to call eternal objects or the primordial nature of God. Those are very interrelated concepts, and he's going to talk about those in the same way that Plato talks about forms, you know, or Kant talks about noumena. These are, it's like objective reality. What is really there behind your perceptions? If, if what you're perceiving in the world is just a representation of something and you don't ever get to see what the real reality is, whatever the real reality is that's unexperienceable, for lack of a better word, whatever that is, that's the primordial nature of God. That's the eternal objects. It's very much related to Carl Jung's concept of the collective unconscious and archetypes. In my opinion, eternal objects and archetypes are probably different names for the same phenomena. But, but that's one side of the coin. That's this, um, again, primordial nature of God idea that Whitehead's going to bring to the table. But God has another aspect. It's called the consequent nature of God. And as far as I can understand it, that's like the things that have become actualized, right? If God is the potential for experience, the experience that has been experienced, the experience that has been brought from potential into actuality, that's the consequent nature of God. If you look around you and you see the cosmos, to me, that is the consequent nature of God. I don't think you would disagree that as conscious beings, we have experiences of the world all the time, constantly. You know, even the experiences we have within ourselves, experiences like of our dreams, we are a part of the world. And so those dreams are just like the experiences you have walking down the street. You know, they are an experience of God. If by the cosmos, by the world around us, we think of that uh, like Whitehead does when he talks about the consequent nature of God. So there's two different ways, just like anything we're going to talk about here. It's a double sided wholeness, remember? There are two ways of experiencing God, for God to be an experience. One of them is realizing God within. That's kind of a mystical experience. The other one is realizing that the world around you is a manifestation of God, and so are you. All right, so pushing on. So Whitehead says that the constituents... Well, Whitehead's philosophy changes what the constituents of reality are. So most philosophy up until Whitehead, and most science today, you know, even today, they start with something that you might call substance. You know, there's a basic something that exists. Um, you might call that energy or matter, you know, a mass. These are all words that maybe are associated with the idea of having a real physical something, right? So for something to exist, it must be made of, of something. And this is the idea of substance. Whitehead doesn't really use this idea of substance, or at least he has a different nomenclature, right? So Whitehead doesn't say substance is at the beginning of of reality. For him, substance is transformed into actual entities, right? So substance is not um, like an atom, the way that science would, would... would propose it rather it's like the most basic constituent of experience so not the most basic constituent of matter or energy but the most basic constituent of experience okay so the philosophy of organism um, substance is transformed into actual entity and then he says the reason for things to exist are always to be found in the composite nature of actual entities so this requires some explaining when he talks about drops of experience, these most simple forms of experience, the actual entities as he calls them, one of the things he says is that they, they interact with other actual entities. And they actually come together to form composite beings. You know, So some of these actual entities will find themselves, for lack of a better explanation, absorbed into another one. And maybe that one gets absorbed into another one. And that one has a relationship with six other ones. And their relationship creates some other being that, that is a, a, you know, a composite of all of them. So there's these layers and layers and layers of existence within these actual entities that we're talking about. So that's what he means by the composite nature of of actual entities. And he says the reason for them to exist is always to be found in their composite nature. Um, So they're like nested within one another to some degree. Um, And it's almost like an inevitability. That's the way he's putting it out. It's like if these two drops of experience come together to form some new entity... The reason for their existence is, simply put, the entities that came together to create them. It makes perfect sense. The reason for its existence is what happened to cause that thing to be, the merging of these two experiences. Um, I'm going to bring this up a little bit later, but maybe it's a good time to give you an example now. I was trying to think of an example of one experience that can kind of join together to create an entirely new type of experience. So let's say you have two actual entities, two types of experience. One of them, let's just say, for the purposes of arguing here, one of them is an experience of time. One of them is an experience of like positive emotion, something that makes you feel happy or something. Um, They come together um, with the... With an actual entity that, let's say, is an experience of pain or separation or finitude. Like, I'm just trying to, trying to uh, kind of flesh this out. Imagine that those come together, and you end up with a new experience. And we'll call that something like nostalgia, wouldn't we? So if you have an experience of time, an, an experience of positive emotion, like a fond memory you have of a bygone, you know, bygone day... And then you had this experience of pain. You put them all together, and you've got the happiness of remembering the fond emotion. You've got this experience of time—you know, this this um, you know one way flow of time that you know you can never you can never go back and have that experience again. And you have this experience of pain and remorse. Oh, you put them all together, and you get something entirely new. You get something that we would call nostalgia. You know, you get the positive emotions plus the pain, but you need this concept of time and, and this um, uh, you know irreversible concept of time. You put them all together, and then you have nostalgia, and you can't have nostalgia without every piece of that puzzle. So maybe that's silly, but it may help to kind of wrap your, your brain around what this means. All right, where, where did I leave off here? Um... Okay, here we are. Then he says this about actual entities. He says, each actual entity is divisible in an indefinite number of ways, and each way yields its prehension. And now this is another one of those vocabulary words. So prehension has to do with relatedness. It's, if we're talking about nostalgia again, we could talk about those, those various um, components of experience that are required to make up nostalgia as an experience. And then we could talk about how they're related, right? So how are those individual actual entities related to come up with this new idea that we call nostalgia? The relation between them that creates this new reality, nostalgia, the relationship is called prehension. This is what he calls it. It's almost like the idea of nostalgia relies on these other ideas, and that idea is prehension. It's like, nostalgia doesn't exist without the relationship of these other ideas. That's prehension. It's about relationship and relatedness. He says, a prehension in, involves emotion and purpose and valuation and causation. So what does he mean by that? How does relatedness involve emotion, purpose, valuation, and causation? Well, it's... it's in some in some ways, we can see purpose and causation as as being relational, right? So if I have a purpose, it's related to um, you know a future a future goal. It's related to the current state of affairs. You can maybe like draw a diagram and position where purpose and even causation fits into this idea of relationships. But then we have these two. Then we have. We have, well we have valuation and that's interesting too because that is a that is a mental concept valuation right is to take um, account of what exists um, to take count of um, what its value is what its uses are what its relationships are it's sort of a cognitive process it has to do with um, with mind you might say or consciousness and that's going to come up a lot with Whitehead but the other thing I want to I want to bring up is this These two words, emotion and causation, which are included here. Just if I could go back for a second to talk about um, the episode that we did on uh, David Chalmers' conscious mind. So he was talking about the hard problem of consciousness. And he was trying to explain to us why it's such a hard problem and what that means. And one of the things he said is that consciousness is a mystery. Because unlike all the physical things in the world that we see, unlike almost everything in the world um, and everything we experience... They all have an explanation um, in physics. They all have a physical material explanation. You can say this object exists because of this whole process of um, physics that have unfolded to allow it to be here, you know? So everything has a physical explanation, and, and um, uh, it can be kind of reduced to some some component uh, process in physics, and that's what Chalmers calls um, supervenience. And he he says that consciousness doesn't supervene on the physical. By that he means you can't explain consciousness with the laws of physics. There's nothing. There's no information at all about how the way the world works and what we know about physics. To you can't get from that. To consciousness you can't start with you know Schrodinger's equation and you know any of these mathematical or physical concepts and get to consciousness you can't simply can't and it's a baffling but then he says something else in that book that was interesting he said that causation is something else that falls into that category that we don't exactly know um, what it is about the physical laws that causes causation you know why does one thing happen and cause something else to happen? So these two, these two things, uh, even though we can document that, and we can map that, and it's, it's fact and knowledge that we can use to do all kinds of great things, and science has allowed us to do that. You know, I mean, just look at what, what our lives were like 100 years ago. It's powerful, and yet it doesn't have an explanation. And I think that's interesting because Whitehead talks about emotion and causation being involved in this idea of prehension. And those things are related to the hard problem of consciousness. So what we're talking about here, again, this, the, whenever, whenever mind or consciousness comes up in the discussion, I just want you to take a note because this is going to become important. All right, he says, The subjective form uh, an actual entity assumes to a subject is determined by the aim at further integration so to obtain the satisfaction of the completed subject. Okay, now there's a little bit more to this, but this requires some explanation. So subjective form is another one of these components that he's going to talk about. Uh, What he means by this is just like, you know, we were talking earlier a little bit about how your experience of the world is something like a representation, like whatever is objectively there behind your perceptions. We don't really know if if we're ever seeing, if we're ever experiencing we look out and we see sort of a representation of the world. We never see the actual world. So we have this subjective experience. And you might think that, you know, your subjective experience of a cat, like a cat has a particular form or a star has a particular form, um, it might be the case that that form is nothing at all like the reality behind it. So your, your subjective experience of it is only a representation. And we don't have a way of knowing how close to reality it really is. We don't have a way of verifying. So this is what he means by subjective form. So it's like if a subject looks out and sees a form, it's something like a perception, you know, and it's representational. But that, the form it takes to us, Whitehead says, is determined by the aim at further integration. What does he mean by that? Okay, so you remember when we were talking about actual entities, we were saying how One entity might um, connect with another one and form a a greater being, a greater entity between the two, or some combination of relationships among lots of different drops of experience. That's what he means by further integration. Bring more experience into the fold. You know, we're gonna take this wholeness that we've created from all these drops of experience, but we're gonna make it bigger. We're gonna make it more complex. We're gonna add in more drops of experience and find a way to integrate that and have a new synthesis and have a new being, even greater still. This is what he means, and so so strange because he's like, when you as a, as a subject look out at the world and you see the form that things take, that the form they take is designed to allow you to integrate it into your, into your organism, into your being, and there's lots of ways of doing that, there are physical ways of doing that, and there are, um, what's the word he uses, um, conceptual ways of doing that, so conceptual ways is easy, I mean, you can think about maturing, and growing, and learning, and how you kind of synthesize all that new information into your personality, and into your understanding, and you have a new thing, a new personality, a new understanding, um, I think this is a good a way of understanding um, what he's really what he really means by this. All right, then he adds a, a, another sentence here. He says, in other words, final causation and atomism are interconnected philosophical principles. So you have to know a little bit of Aristotle to know what final causation is and what uh, you know how that can contrast to other types of causation because there are others. But final causation, I think, is the one we typically think of when we think of causation. Um, So basically what he's saying here, when he says final causation and atomism being interrelated, what he means is something like this. The parts exist specifically to compose the whole. So atoms exist, let's say, from a scientific perspective specifically and exclusively so that they can become greater beings like you and I, like water, like, you know, whatever atoms whatever atoms can, can possibly form to to become. The parts exist specifically to become a whole. What do you think of that? See see science, the scientific narrative um, is not is not that at all. I mean, atoms don't have a they don't have a fate. They don't have a purpose. They just follow laws. According to Whitehead, they exist specifically to become. It's almost like they have a will and a purpose. And that's strange that a drop of experience could have a will and a purpose. Those are things that you associate with conscious creatures. And Whitehead is going to call these drops of experience, these actual entities, he's going to call them creatures, right? This is what he calls the philosophy of organism. Every experience, um, at least those that reach concrescence, which we're going to talk about, that just means becoming actualized, becoming physically real, that they have, um, well, potentially consciousness. All right, Uh, he goes on, he says... The philosophy of organism adopts the view that actual entities involve each other by reason of their prehensions of each other. He says, any fact of togetherness among actual entities is called a nexus. Okay, so we have another vocabulary word here, but I'll I'll try to make it simple for you. All right, so his philosophy says that actual entities involve each other by reason of their prehension of each other. So every, every... bit of experience, every drop of experience, every potentiality for experience that exists, they're all connected to one another. Now, I see that as one thing. I see that as one big experience or one big potential for, for, for experience. Whitehead doesn't seem to, f- to see it quite that way. He sees it as a web of relationships. But here's the, here's the kicker. <laughs> the web of relationships Itself becomes an entity. It becomes a being of its own. It's called a nexus. So imagine you have all of these drops of experience, what he calls actual entities. And they find themselves in relationship with each other. Um, you have this web of relationships. I'm just imagining this diagram with all these different dots and lines that are connected to each one. You know, and you can see the pattern of relationships that are possible, like a map of neurons in your brain, something like that. Whitehead sees that, this, the fact of this relationship, this web of, of relationships, as joining all of those drops of experience together and in, in, in becoming something new. And that something new is called a nexus. So it's, this is like a composite being made up of a bunch of other smaller beings. And you can think about that, and you should think about that, as an organism. You know, like think about your body. Your body is an organism, but what does that mean? You're made up of other organisms, right? Your cells, the bacteria and viruses that live in you know symbiotic relationship with your body, um, the atoms, the molecules that make up them, the atoms that make up the the molecules. All of this stuff are are organisms that are that are existing within greater levels of being until you reach the level of a human body. So this is what you're supposed to imagine: something like this. You might think of a human body as a nexus, and it's made up of all these relationships of other of other organisms. And then he says, "Platonic philosophy seeks the forms in the facts." So let's just take that for a second. You know, if you're familiar with philosophy at all, or if you've heard uh, any of my prior episodes about. Uh, Greek philosophy. We talk about Plato. I did a a couple of episodes specifically on Plato in the early days. Um, He talks about the world of forms, and he sees the world of reality, which Whitehead would call uh, the consequent nature of God. But then he sees the world of forms, which are these patterns that exist um, that he can detect in reality. And so Whitehead would call that the primordial nature of God. So this is how we want to try to synthesize Plato and Whitehead. He said, Plato seeks the forms and the facts. So what does that mean? A fact, a fact of existence might be a creature. It might be, you know, a type of experience. um, But you can imagine other similar creatures, or you can imagine other experiences that, other people having the same experiences, or other experiences that are similar. So there are patterns that you can detect behind things, you know? Um, an example that uh, Plato uses, Socrates uses, and I've used before is something like beauty. You could say that I recognize that there's such a thing as beauty, and I see it in the sunset, and I see it in the, you know, the body of a beautiful woman, and I see it in uh, a painting or a song, let's say. And I think we'd all agree, uh, yes, you can see beauty in these different examples. So you can see that there's pattern, a pattern there behind those examples. But what's difficult to do is to say what it is about each of those instances. A beautiful woman's body, uh, a sunset, and a song. Very different types of things. So can you pull out from those three things the pattern? What's common? What is it that's beauty in all three scenarios? I think you agree that the beauty is there, but can you say what it is that's common without using the word beauty or a synonym? No. So that pattern becomes something that's almost unknowable. So this is a form according to Plato. And this is what Whitehead begins with. He says, Platonic philosophy sees the forms in the facts. They see the patterns that exist in the individual particular examples of that pattern. Beauty exists. That's the pattern. A sunset is an example of that pattern. A beautiful body is an example of that pattern. A song is an example of that pattern. But the pattern itself seems to be something more fundamental or more real. And simultaneously, not real at all. Because you can't point to that pattern. You can't put it in a jar. It doesn't really exist. And yet without it, you don't have those, if those actual examples in the world. And this is what Whitehead adds. He says, each fact is more than its forms. Right? So each individual actual object in the world, it has a form, which is something like an, an abstract pattern, but it also has itself, it has this particular embodiment that exists. So a fact is more than just a form. It's a potential, that's the form, and it's the actual, that's the particular object that exists that represents that form. It's both. And then he says, and each form participates throughout the world of facts, Each form participates throughout the world of facts. And you can can understand that too. It's like you see the same pattern embodied other places. You see the same form, beauty that you see in a body. You see it in a song, you see it in the sunset. It's like it's reused. It's reused, it's um, re-constituted, it's reconceptualized in other ways. And so everything is connected you see those patterns being reused, you realize that there's some deep connection there. That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the category of the ultimate. So this is something that Whitehead says, every philosophy has something like this. They have to have an ultimate. They have to have something that nothing higher can be conceived. I think that was St. who said that about God. But every, every system of philosophy needs an ultimate and what whitehead, what whitehead says is this he says creativity many one are the ultimate notions involved in the meaning of the terms thing being and entity so the ultimate is something like creativity many or one and we see those things in the world as being you know things that you can point to and say you know there's something that exists a being. Okay, so this is interesting. So you can see that many and one are opposites, very much like this double-sided wholeness that we started talking about. And creativity is that word that, that again, Whitehead really means God by that word. And, you know, just to be clear, what he means by that is that which makes reality possible. That is the simplest definition of God. I don't know why anybody would object to that. They they do with me all the time, but I'm just going to say it again. That is the simplest definition of the word God, that which makes reality possible, period. So to Whitehead, that's creativity or the creative advance. All right, he goes on. He says, the term one stands for the singularity of an entity, the term many presupposes the term one, and the term one presupposes the term many. The term many conveys disjunctive diversity. This notion is an essential element in the concept of being. There are many beings in disjunctive diversity. All right, so I'll tell you what I think is important about this little passage here. He's talking about the oneness, you know. this We talked about this... Um, uh, this idea of, of oneness and unity that we're going to see over and over and over again. So he starts there. Um, the one stands for the singularity of an entity. Then he says the term many is presupposed in the term one and one and many. So you have the these opposites that are presupposed. Right, You can't have many without one. And as soon as you have one, the idea of having any more than that you know, implies something more than one. That's what we call many. So all you have to do is, you know, begin with the concept of one and, you know, any consideration of that concept, like duplicating it or dividing it or multiplying, any sort of thing like that is going to get you to this concept of many. So you can't separate the the idea of one from many or the idea of many from one. So you have this little bit of a paradox, but it harkens back to the Ouroboros idea, this this idea of um, generative union of opposites. But when he uses the word many, he's talking about our our experience of the world. The world seems to be a thing made up of many different objects, right? And that's what he calls disjunctive diversity. You look out, you see all these different things, they're not, they don't seem to be connected or related to one another. They seem to be distinct things um, doing their own thing. And we can have experiences of them, and we can interact with them. We are ourselves one of those many objects, right? That's what he calls disjunctive diversity. And he said that that's essential in understanding being. That's how we imagine the world. The world of being is like that. Many things in disjunctive diversity. Okay, then he goes on, he says, Creativity is the universal of universals. It is the ultimate principle by which the many, which are the universe disjunctively, become the one, which is the universe conjunctively. It lies in the nature of things that the many enter into complex unity. So, when he says it lies in the nature of things that the many enter into complex unity, he might as well just say it lies in nature that many enter into complex unity. Because that's again saying it, it's in the nature of things. It's it's it is, but it's also in nature. Like that's how nature is. Uh, think about. Just think about how, how interrelated everything on Earth is And how interrelated the solar system is And how interrelated the galaxies are in the cosmos You know, everything is pushing and pulling on one another Everything is recycling and feeding back into itself There's cycles of birth and death and transformation And everything is doing that all the time You can't separate any one part of it It's all one thing So it lies in the nature of things that they may enter into unity Yeah, I, I think that's pretty clear Now, because the world seems to be made up of this disjunctive diversity, it seems to be made up of all these different things. Um, but in reality, we know how connected everything is. That's what he calls conjunctive diversity. He's just talking about the union of things, understanding things as they are, interconnected, you know? Mutually counterdependent. That's another way I like to put it. So creativity is the process of synthesis. You know, how entities interact to ingress, which is another word we'll we'll hear in a bit, bit prehend and actualize as a unity. That's called concrescence. To act, to be actualized as that's, that's the word he uses, concrescence. They find a way to exist as one. And I'll give you an example of things finding a way to exist as one. We can you can think about the. Interconnectivity between all the forces of nature and matter and energy and motion and all that—you can think about that as all interconnected, cause and effect, and all that. But another way of thinking about that is to just look at examples like, like symbiosis. Now, you ever seen those uh, sharks in the documentary? They're they're swimming through the ocean. They have these little lampreys, these these eels that are attached to their belly, and they just eat all the food that falls from the from the. Um, shark's mouth, they eat the bacteria and parasites that live on its skin. They live in this mutually beneficial way as one unit. The sharks and the lampreys. That's something that is symbiotic, right? They they are individual beings, but they exist together in harmony. They exist as one unit. And that's not a rare thing in nature. It's everywhere. Think about the bacteria that lives in our our gut now we couldn't couldn't digest our food without them our immune system wouldn't wouldn't function without them and how about the um the theory there's a a theory i don't think it's proven but a theory that multicellular organisms first formed from single celled organisms you can imagine if you've ever seen an amoeba a single celled organism it just had, like reaches out it's just a blob and it reaches out with these little blob arms and it grabs you know it just encircles whatever the um Uh, you know, like the food or whatever it is that it's come across, and then it just kind of absorbs it into its body. And science thinks that this happened, um, you know, in prehistory. It happened way, way, way back in time where uh, one of these amoeba or some single-celled organism, it found itself joining together or trying to consume, let's say, a cyanobacteria, which is a single-celled organism that that does photosynthesis, right? So it, it can turn light into into sugar, into energy. And at some point, one of these single-celled organisms came up and absorbed the cyanobacteria in. And because the cyanobacteria was still photosynthesizing and it was making energy available to this, to this single cell creature, it didn't, it didn't destroy it. It just lived in symbiosis with it. It just became one thing. So that's another, another way of understanding this. All right, so Whitehead says the ultimate metaphysical principle is the advance from disjunction to conjunction, which is just the, the, one, the many becoming one, you know, from disjunction to conjunction. It's something like an eternal Hegelian dialectic, by the way. If you guys are familiar with the idea of uh, Hegel's dialectic, it's a constant process of synthesis. Um, Whitehead says that this ultimate metaphysical principle is creating a novel entity. And this is, this is interesting. So imagine that you've got two or more actual entities, these drops of experience, that come together uh, in a certain relationship to form a greater being. That's a new thing. It's a novel thing. Like If we go back to our example of uh, nostalgia, you've got all these emotions, these experiences that exist. They come together to create something entirely new. Now, it wouldn't be possible without its constituents, but it's entirely new. Nostalgia is not the same as an experience of time. It's not the same as an experience of pain or positive emotion. It's something that requires all of them. So it's a novel new thing. So when you have these many becoming one, whatever this new oneness is, whatever this synthesis is in the Hegelian terms, it's something new. Now Whitehead says, the novel entity is at once the togetherness of the many, and also it is one among the many. (laughs) He says, it is a novel entity among the many entities which it synthesizes. And here's the good bit. The many become one, right? in conjunction, and, Whitehead says, are increased by one, right? The many become one, but the new thing, this new oneness is new. It's something else. So you've got the many plus one. And I find that interesting because, because God is, is defined very commonly as something eternal and infinite, and what we've just described here in this process, this white Whiteheadian process of the many becoming one, synthesizing into some new wholeness and becoming itself something unique, right? You've got, you've got all of the experience that exists plus this new one, and that process never stops, it just keeps going over and over and over again, new synthesis and a new wholeness, a new synthesis and a new wholeness, over and over and over and over again. And I've called that before, Infinity in action. If you remember, I talked about my own mystic experience and having this thought experiment of something that I called the being generator. And it has something to do with experiencing changing the experiencer and that process never stopping. So you're, it's you're just continually churning out new experience and novelty. This is exactly what Whitehead imagined was going on. So entities are in process of passage into conjunctive, conjunctive unity. All experiences are trying to synthesize; they're trying to be trying to join together and become one. Whitehead says, "Thus, the production of novel togetherness is the ultimate notion embodied in the term concrescence." So this is that another one of those vocabulary words, but concrescence means something like. Concrete togetherness Like becoming real through your relationship With each other So actual entities become real They become concrescent they, be, they go from this state of potential To a state of actual Being physically real in the world And experienceable, let's say And that's called concrescence That brings me to the next section Which we're going to call Categories of existence And this is where we're going to get into that vocabulary lesson I'm going to let Whitehead do most of the talking. He says, actual entities, which he also calls actual occasions to make it more confusing, they're final realities, he says. Prehensions, these are relationships, relatedness between entities. And the nexus, he calls public matters of fact. But remember, a nexus is like a composite um, being that's made up of the actual entities that are prehending one another. They have this web of, of relationships between these different experiences. They create something new. Now, that something new exists in the world, and it's something that's experienceable. And maybe it's a person. Maybe it's the ocean. Maybe it's the earth. You know, maybe it's a tree. Um, you know, something like that. And so that's why they're public matters of fact, because they're experienceable by any subject. They're public matters of fact. They've become you know, real and experienceable. Then he says there's subjective form, which we've already talked about. He calls them private matters of fact. The reason they're private matters of fact is because only you know them. You You look at a tree and you see something. You have no way of knowing if that's what somebody else sees when they look at that tree. It's private. It's your subjective experience. It's private matters of fact. And then the last category he calls eternal objects. Now, they're pure potentials. There's something like Plato's forms, and he actually calls them forms of definiteness. Um, They're also very highly related to Jung's archetypes. And Jung says something very similar about archetypes that they contribute to making something a particular thing. And and he's talking more about personality, Um, you know, having a particular personality. Um, Whitehead. Is going to talk about this, you know, from the perspective of experience. But these eternal objects are what he calls pure potentials. They're something that exists eternally, and they're used. They're used. They're re, they're necessary components of experience, just like these actual entities that we've been talking about. Eternal objects are said to ingress into these act, actual entities. We'll, we'll talk more about that. All right, so now that I've read to you what Whitehead um, talks about, these various categories, I'll give you what I think they mean, more or less. So actual entities are what exists. They're what experience is made of, you know, drops of experience. They're constituents of material reality and sentient experience. I'm not sure that those things are different. Um, but uh, but wh- whether they're not whether they're the same or different, um, actual entities are what uh, are what they're composed from. Prehension are how things exist in relation to one another, and how they interact to yield one another. So a combination of things might become something new that that has something to do with their relationship with one another. A nexus is. The relations of actual entities forming a greater organism, something that's observable, you know, being or beings. Then there's subjective form, which again, subjectivity. It's qualia, right? It's those. It's the subjective part of your experience. It's the qualitative part of your experience. When David Chalmers talks about qualia, he means things like colors and taste and emotions and things like that that are that are personal to you. Things like like your perception of how you represent the world. Things appear as they do to facilitate prehensions and unification with them. So subjective form is is supposed to have a, a quality of attracting, compelling, or ma- making you interested um, in this other experience. So the way that things seem to you are designed to attract or repel you. And if you're being attracted to something, Whitehead says, that's like, an invitation to unify with them. So I always like to try to think of an example to make this make sense, but one, one thing I've talked about before is a particular experience I've had, maybe a couple, but one comes to mind of a person who displayed just tremendous generosity to me and to others. And I remember seeing it and being impressed by it. I was attracted to this quality that I saw in this other individual. And I I had because of those emotions, I had an incentive to, well, I wanted those for myself. I wanted to be generous like that. So you can see how that interest compelled me to bring that quality into myself, right? It's like it has this, the, you know, the subjective form has something to do with bringing you to um, to unite with that thing, with that experience. And I, you know, was compelled to do exactly that, to become a more generous person and to to kind of adopt that quality uh, in my own personality. So it becomes a part of me, you see? And then lastly, eternal objects. These are, again, you might call them archetypes. You might call them noumena. You might call them objective reality. I like to think of them as potentiality. I like to think about God in general as something like potentiality. Um, you know, the potential for for existence, the potential for reality, whatever that might be. And um, Whitehead calls them pure potential. Now, they lend definite form to drops of experience to differentiate and actualize them. So these eternal objects, kind of like the archetypes if we're talking about, uh, you know, the Jungian perspective, that they lend form, that they allow uh, whatever... Um, drop of experience that they're ingressing into, whatever they're attaching themselves to, they allow that experience to be a particular type of experience. So they they make the experience real, but they also make them what they are. They differentiate them. So you can imagine um, you have this potential for experience. Well, how do you get from this general potential of experience to a particular experience? So Whitehead says these eternal objects are what are what are what contributes to that. They're how being, let's say, becomes human being, a specific type. So there's something that contribute to the multiplicity of the world, to, to the um, disjunctive diversity that Whitehead talks about. But interestingly, eternal objects are they even though they contribute to diversity, they are... They participate in the creative advance. They participate in what what, um, Whitehead calls the primordial nature of God. They're like these timeless, eternal, um, potential um, things that are always there, you know, and can be leveraged to become reality. So that's the best I can do, you know, in trying to uh, explain what that what that means. All right, so continuing with Whitehead, he says, Among these categories of existence, actual entities and eternal objects stand out with a certain extreme finality. They are the fundamental types of entities. The other types only express how they are in community with each other in the actual world. So like we talked about a nexus being an example of that. Um, So really, what we can focus on, what Whitehead calls fundamental, are actual entities these drops of experience and eternal objects these are these these numinous things that exist in a numinous realm you know they're these eternal things that find their way into reality from somewhere else you know they're from this potential and they find their way into the actual he says the world is a process And that process is the becoming of actual entities. He says actual entities are creatures. All right, so when he says the world is a process and that the process is the becoming of actual entities, he doesn't mean the generation of actual entities, like they're being born from somewhere. Becoming doesn't mean created. It means changing or transforming. So being is in contrast to becoming, right? I am a human being, I'm in a certain state, I'm being as I am, but I'm also always changing into something else, and what I'm being tomorrow will be different, right, so that's what becoming means, it's like the the arc of your existence, you know, so when he says the world is a process, and that process is the becoming of actual entities, what he means is the transformation of experience, right, what exists, reality, is a process of the transformation of experience. Now think about your life. Your life has been exactly that story. A transformation of your experience. What was it like for you to be when you were a, an infant, a toddler, you know, an adolescent, an adult, an elderly person, whatever? Your experience is constantly transforming. Meanwhile, the world around you, the things you're experiencing, are constantly transforming too, aren't they? They're breaking down, they're changing, you know, the mall gets bulldozed, the new office building gets put up, you know, the, the crops die and they get they're reborn in the next spring. Everything's constantly changing. Then he says actual entities are creatures, right? They live, they act, they transform, they have will and motivation, you know? A potential experience wants to be an actual experience. They have a, have a will, you know? And Carl Jung talks about archetypes exactly this way. That archetypes have a personality of their own, but they also have a will of their own. Like they're living creatures, like the various personalities that make up your psyche are all independently living organisms. This is exactly parallel to what Whitehead says about the world. He says, In the becoming of an actual entity... Many entities acquire unity. They are the concrescence of many potentials. So the concrescence of many potentials, they come together to be made real. They join together to to become one thing, like like a synthesis. And this is where I wanted to bring up that idea of nostalgia that I shared with you already. Nostalgia is a combination of positive emotion and the passage of time with fear and pain of the fact of temporality. You need all of those experiences to come together, to form or to make this experience of nostalgia possible. He says the potentiality for concrescence of many entities into one actuality, so for many potential experiences to be made real, to be an actual experience... He says, it, that is the metaphysical character of all entities. that Every item in its universe is involved in each concrescence. So when he says every item in its universe, so you have to remember that to Whitehead, reality is an organism, but it's made up of organisms at smaller, smaller scales and larger and larger scales infinitely. There's no end to it. So every entity is sort of its own universe So that's what he means by that. Every item in its universe, so all the entities making up that organism, they're involved in making making themselves real in their concrescence, making themselves manifest, that transition from potential to actual. Then he says, in other words, it belongs to the nature of a being that it is a potential for every becoming. So every being has the potential to, you know, um, attach itself to some other being to become something new to impact something else to become something new, and you can think about just biological evolution in that way. You know, being has a experience of um, of being right of nature, uh, and it adapts to that and constantly transforms, and that's what we call becoming, right? belongs to the nature of a being that it is a potential for every becoming. It's amazing. He says, Each entity in the universe of a given concrescence can be in many modes, but is expressed in only one mode. The particular mode is determined by that concrescence. This indetermination rendered determinate in concrescence is the meaning of potentiality. Alright, so I know there's a bunch there. It's 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 gobbledygook, but let me try to unravel this for you. Alright, so he says each entity in a concrescence, so in this kind of greater being that, that it make that they make up, can be in many modes. So you can think about experience, remember, it's something like potential. So potential is like undefined, it's undifferentiated, it's something like a stem cell, right? It could become anything. And so that's what he has in mind here. It's like this actual entity can, can take any form, really, but it's expressed only in one form, and he calls mode, and that's a mode. And the mode is determined by the concrescence. So you've got all these potentials that are joined together to become this, this larger being, and their relationships, their prehensions, and this greater wholeness determines what each potential is. So the wholeness determines what its components are, and you've got this weird paradox that gets entered in here. Now, if you're interested in, in trying to understand uh, this idea of a mode, um, Dr. Uh, Schursted-Hughes, in his book, Modes of Sentience, he, he gave us a kind of an, an interesting example. He said that magnesium is a mode, right? a mode of, of an atom. It's one way that an atom can manifest itself. And then he said magnanimity is a mode, you know, like of an emotion or a personality. So you got to have an idea of what he means. You have this general concept, and it can, it can be applied in particular ways. So it's something that's indeterminate, and it becomes determinate. The potential becomes actual. And that's, he says, that's, that's concrescence, that, that, and that's the meaning of potential. So you've got this interesting paradox here. Potential is rendered actual. Well, those are opposites, right? How can potential be rendered actual? And according to Whitehead, that happens—that happens through a process called concrescence, which is all about um, experience uh, in in a relationship with other experience, becoming a unity. That potential is made real by becoming a unity. All right, he says an eternal object can be described. Only in terms of its potentiality For ingression Into actual entities It is a pure potential The term ingression Refers to how an eternal object Is realized in an actual entity Contributing to its definiteness So more word salad But what this means here He said Basically saying That an eternal object Is Something that can ingress Into actual entities So it's very hard to understand, very high level conceptually. You've got this potential for experience, and then you've got these eternal objects, and that they can sort of color the experience by entering into this, um, well, let's call it a stem cell, right? This, this actual entity is like a stem cell for experience. And the eternal object is like this heavenly thing, it's like this numinous thing that's always there. That's the um, potential for experience. And it enters into, um, or excuse me, it's the object of experience. And it, it enters into this potential for experience and becomes something specific. I know that's probably not any clearer. The idea is that you've got this stem cell. This eternal object will enter into the stem cell and make it a specific type of cell. And it's not a great analogy, but you, you probably understand what I mean by that. So so this eternal object is responsible for the definiteness of the experience. It's what makes the experience a particular experience. He says, how an actual entity becomes constitutes what it is. Its being is constituted by its becoming. This is the principle of process. All right, so, this is a paradox. When he says, its being is constituted by its becoming, right, like, Okay, so being is like what I am now, and becoming is like what I might be or what I'm slowly transitioning into, right? Something like that. So how is it that my becoming can constitute my being? Becoming is something like the future or potential. How can my potential determine what I am now? So whenever you see a paradox like that, just like we started with when we talked about the Generative union of opposites, right? How can how can opposites be in union? And how can that be generative? There's a paradox. Whenever we're talking about origins in ontology, we're always run up against this paradox. And this is what I see here. And Whitehead says, an actual entity is a concrescence of prehensions, which have originated in its process of becoming. Okay, so you can imagine... When he's talking about prehensions, he's talking about relationships between experiences, right? So, or relatedness. So in my process of becoming, I'm going to have various types of experiences. What he's saying here is that that, that the prehensions are made real. Okay, so that's what the word concrescence means. An actual entity is a concrescence of prehensions. Prehensions are relationships, And those relationships are made real. They're taken from a state of potential into a state of actual. And it's so strange. It's like prehensions are like this web of potential, of potential experience, and it becomes actualized. It becomes experienceable or experienced right, by a subject. Then he says a nexus is a set of actual entities in relatedness, constituted by their prehensions of each other, by their objectifications in each other. So we already talked about this a bit. I mean, a nexus is like a composite being. You've got these actual entities in relationship with one another, and they create this, well, them and their relationships to one another create this larger um, you know, uh, being, larger creature. So this is just the idea of the human body. I mean, you could think of the human body prehending the cells and molecules and atoms. So we kind of already covered that. And then he says, it is an essential doctrine in the philosophy of organism that the primary function of a proposition, by that he just means a potential something, is to be a lure for feeling. The aim which controls the becoming of a subject is feeling a potential and realizing it in the process of self-creation. All right, so again, hard to understand, but there's some interesting bits here. And he's saying that it's essential to his philosophy. So let's let's try to understand this. He says the primary function of a potential is to be a lure for feeling. Okay, so the idea is that there's some potential experience out there. And if I were to have that experience, it would elicit a feeling. And it's like a lure, it's like an attraction. The fact that there's a possibility. You know just like that's just how human beings are as soon as we realize something might be possible then we we you know we put our heads to it or we put our, we put our minds to it and we figure out a way of making it actual and so this is what he says that 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 potentials have a lure they have an appeal and it's something like fulfilling what it wants it wants to it wants to be experienced in new and novel ways, right? And, uh, I th- and there's really not, not a big difference between the word experience and the word feeling. These are very highly correlated. And then he says, the aim which controls the becoming of a subject is feeling a potential and realizing it in its self-creation. So as a subject, you know, we can feel. And those feelings are something like an incentive. There's something like a motivation, uh, for us to to have a new experience to, to to actualize some new experience, and that doing so is is a way of, in the way in which we build ourselves, the way in which we build our personality and we mature and, and it's it's the process of our becoming, is it not? He says each element in an actual entity has one function, final satisfaction. In concrescence, new prehensions arise. The process continues till all prehensions are components in the one determinant satisfaction. All right, so what does he mean by that? First of all, I want to say I disagree with this, but before I tell you why, let me just spell this out here. So he said every actual entity, so every potential for experience, has one job final satisfaction, to, to be actualized. Then he says, "Inconcrescence, which is the process of going from potential to actual," he said new prehensions arise. That means new relationships arise. We we already talked about this when we said these drops of experience have relationships with one another, and those relationships um, form a, a a higher being that's made up out of them. So then you have right, you have all the things you had before. Right? Now you have this new thing, right? Because you have the new thing, you have this new wholeness. You have new relationships because you have something new in the mix. So you have new relationships between those experiences and the thing that make up those experiences. And you have to find a way of synthesizing that too. Now, when Whitehead says that that that's final satisfaction, like this synthesis of becoming a new whole, I'm okay calling that satisfaction if if this is what the will of reality is, to, to continuously make new uh, new things out of itself and then resynthesize them into a whole. If that's what the process is, I can go with that. But I can't call it final because it's not final. Every concrescence, right creates new prehensions. They have to be synthesized again. So there's no final to it. The, sat- the satisfaction is the process itself. There's there's no end to that every concrescence creates that new that one new thing that has to be resynthesized and on and on and on you go then he says every actual excuse me every actuality embodies a principle of unrest namely its becoming so so everything is becoming it's a, it's it's constantly having new experiences and changing and transforming just like we've talked about now, the principle of unrest you may have heard before because the philosopher Schopenhauer talked about it. He, he called it restlessly striving, like something that characterizes human beings is restlessly striving. So the principle of unrest is something that fits right in there. You know, nothing's ever good enough for us. We always, always want the the you know progress and new technology and and you know there's just nothing's ever good enough. That's what that's what human beings find themselves to be restlessly striving. And that has something to do with becoming, right? That restlessly striving is endless. It's not a final satisfaction. It's an it's eternal process. All right, then Whitehead says, the philosophy of organism is a repudiation of the notion of vacuous actuality, the notion of reality devoid of subjective immediacy. An actual entity is at once the subject experiencing and the superject of its experiences. It is subject to superject, and neither half of this description can for a moment be lost sight of. So I actually really like this, although I never heard the word superject until I read Whitehead. So what he's saying here is that his philosophy says that it is impossible for reality to be devoid of subjective immediacy. There is no such thing as vacuous actuality. Now this is what differs between modern scientific narratives and Whitehead's process philosophy because modern scientific narratives believe um, that actuality is vacuous, that space-time is vacuous, and it just happens to be filled with objects. And none of those objects are a subject. Right? Consciousness comes much later in evolution. It emerges, right, according to the scientific narrative. Um, and so there's most of, of the history of the cosmos and, and most of reality didn't include consciousness or sentience of any kind. And that's not what Whitehead believes. Whitehead says, no, reality is experience. So there is, it's impossible for there to be an actuality that is devoid of subjective immediacy. There's always a subject there's always sentience. Then he says, an actual entity is at once the subject experiencing, and the superject of, his, of its experience. And I take this to mean that an actual entity is subject and object both. Right? They're an object because they're because there's something that's um, being experienced, right? But they're also whatever it is that makes experience possible. That's a subject, right? So you can't actually remove this idea of sentience from the idea of experience. And that obviously makes sense, you know, those those words are related and you can't have one without the other. But what Whitehead's perspective is that they're one thing. The object of experience and the experiencer are one thing. He says, in the philosophy of organism, it is not substance which is permanent, but form. Forms suffer, excuse me, forms suffer changing relations. Actual entities perpetually perish subjectively, but are immortal objectively. In perishing, actuality acquires objectivity while it loses subjective immediacy. It loses the final causation which is the internal principle of unrest. All right, so this idea of restlessly striving that we were talking about, you might imagine that's something that stops only when you're dead. And you can imagine it would. Um, Whitehead is going to make a kind of an analogy from these entities, these organisms that come together to form a new organism, a new wholeness. You know, these actual entities come together to form a nexus or something like that. And when they do that, the actual entities that were previously standing on their own that now constitute a piece of this greater being, that they have sort of forfeited They have forfeited their Well, they forfeited their subjectivity, right? They don't have a subject anymore because they're part of this greater subject. Who's, who's seemingly the real deal? Now this thing is is the real deal, made up of these of these things that used to be the real deal. See what I mean? So they used to be a subject, but they give that up in order to be uh, to be washed away into this greater whole, and that they ab- achieve um, immortal objectivity, right? So it's immortal because it's outside of time, right? It's like. As long as this greater being exists, the reality of the existence of its constituents can't, can't be um, questioned. Because if they didn't exist, this new being wouldn't exist. They're mutually counter-dependent. Something like that. So satisfaction ends that restlessly striving. Uh, becoming one, this synthesis that we've been talking about. And it's something like dying in order to become a greater whole or forfeiting your existence to be absorbed into a greater reality, a greater consciousness, something like that. He says eternal objects are potentials for the process of becoming. Their ingression expresses the definiteness of actuality. So we talked about that a little bit already, but eternal objects determine what particular experience an actual entity yields. So they're both necessary for an experience to be actual, for anything potential to become actual. We need eternal objects, and we need actual entities. All right, then he says the primordial fact. That's an interesting way of putting it. Like there's only one. The primordial fact is the unconditioned conceptual valuation of the entire multiplicity of eternal objects. All right, fuck, that's a mouthful. So the primordial fact is the unconditioned conceptual valuation of eternal objects. Now eternal objects are something that exist outside of time. They're always there and always available to be to be they're in this state of potential and can always be made actual. When he says that this primordial fact is is a it's a conceptualization and a evaluation of those eternal objects, then you have to ask, what is doing that? What is doing the valuation of eternal objects? And if eternal objects are immortal and exist in this you know numinous way, like how do we how do we put this together? What does this mean? And I can't help but see a form of idealism in this. I can't help but see the place or the thing that contains these eternal objects is something like mind, right? But from mind in an idealist sort of way, not mind like my mind or your mind or even a collective consciousness. Mind like this abstract, um, fundamental thing, like nothing else, you know, like, like a free-floating mind. Like if you can imagine space-time, If you look up at the cosmos, if you imagine this structure of space-time to be sentient, maybe, and for all of the energy and matter that arises in the world to come from it, then maybe that could be a good analogy for what Whitehead means by mind. And then he says, this is the primordial nature of God. The objectification of God in each actual entity results in the concrescent phases. The objectification of God and each actual entity. That means that God becomes an object in experience. It's mind-blowing. It's like what I, what I always say. We are the experience God is having. That's what he said here. God becomes an object in an actual entity. God becomes an object of experience. And that's how The potential, which we can call God, no problem with that. That's how that becomes real. That's how it becomes concrescent. Through experience. Through its own sentience. Something like that. Then he says, The non-temporal act of all-inclusive, unfettered valuation is at once a creature of creativity and a condition for creativity. What does that mean? I mean it means mind is at once a creature of creativity and a condition for creativity. So we have another paradox there, don't we? Mind is creator and creation simultaneously. Amazing. And Whitehead says it shares this double character with all creatures. Right? And he says, God's eminence in the world is an urge towards the future based upon an appetite in the present. Appetition is the valuation of an immediate feeling combined with the urge towards realization. Appetition is a principle of unrest. So what does this mean? It means sentience recognizes a potential that could be made actual. There's an appeal to that. There's an appetite for that. To make the potential actual. That's the process in its most simple um, illustration in process philosophy. You take the the potential, you make it actual. End of story. So there's always a will, a desire, a movement in that direction because that's what the universe is. Full stop. Then he says something interesting. He says there can only be one non-derivative actuality. Unbounded by its prehensions, this is sort of the starting point of all of the interconnected uh, it, actual entities, all of the interconnected experience. It can only be one. That's awfully, that's awfully uh, sympatico with mystic intuition, is it not? The universe is one. And he says such a primordial superject of creativity achieves the complete conceptual valuation of all eternal objects. So what he's describing is. Mind, disembodied, primordial, fundamental. That's God. That's the creative advance. He said God's primordial nature is God in abstraction, alone with himself. It is deficient in actuality. So see, God is more than just this potential idea. He's more than just the primordial nature of God. It's also the consequent nature of God. It's creator and creation. And that brings me to my conclusion. Whitehead tells us that the ultimate facts of experience are actual entities, prehensions, and nexus, which we take to mean that drops of experience become fractally interconnected to form a greater being, a nexus, constituted by the web of relations among them the notion of entanglement from quantum physics immediately comes to mind. Just as the physicist Robert Dijkraaf thinks that space-time is generated by the entangled relationship between particles, Whitehead thinks material reality is generated by the entangled relationship between entities. Whitehead's model allows for those relationships to be physical, conceptual, and even paradoxical. Actual entities can exist within other entities. They can be born from them and simultaneously constitute them. They defy time and logic because they are, in a sense, outside of time. What what Whitehead calls subjective immortality. I am fascinated by this, but can't adopt these ideas myself until I understand just what the hell a drop of experience is. Are they fundamental to reality? Are they created? Are they infinite or finite? Just what the hell is an actual entity? From Whitehead, we know that the fundamental types are actual entities and eternal objects. Actual entities are described as drops of experience or the potential for experience. And eternal objects as pure potentials. Or the undifferentiated object of experience. Both are equally needed for experience to be. Now, in the spirit of oneness we began with, we must consider if the potential for experience, those are actual entities, pure objects of experience, eternal objects, and the process that works between them are themselves one thing. The absolute. Whitehead has, at least so far, not distinguished between the objective immortality of eternal objects and that of actual entities. Both seem to exist always and in perpetual union. So it may be that we cannot answer the question, what is an actual entity, without bringing under the umbrella also eternal objects. Looking deeper... Whitehead says an actual entity is the subject of its own immediacy. And by that, he means the subject of its own becoming. So an actual entity is the subject of its own becoming. Now, he also says becoming is a creative advance into novelty. In light of the fact that the creative advance is what stands at the center of reality in Whitehead's philosophy we can only understand this to mean that experience and the subject having experience are in fact one thing. So again I ask, what is a drop of experience? Whitehead responds by reminding us that reality devoid of subjective immediacy is impossible and that the primordial fact is the conceptual valuation of eternal objects. So it seems that something rests at the foundation of reality, which contains concepts, eternal objects, and is a subject. Now, what would you call something like this? How about mind? Does that work for you? Works for me. So in this model, we have mind, which is eternal objects and actual entities. The object of experience... You might might say mind itself. And the potential for experience, which you might just call sentience. Eternal objects and actual entities are not static and dead, but alive and interacting. This internal dynamism, which we see mirrored in all of reality, is the process the Whitehead calls the creative advance. It moves within itself, creating new experience, and transforming eternally as a consequence. It is self-contained, self-sufficient, and self-fulfilling. It is one unified whole.
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work